1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. I'll read this as you listen along. After I'm done reading it, I'll say something like, this is God's word. If you agree that this is God's gift to us, join me to say, thanks be to God. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. And thanks be to God. Well, if you knew that the world was ending tomorrow night, what would you do today? You know, pretty much every genre of music has tried answering that question. Uh, The country singer Tim McGraw wants to live every day like he's dying. Um, So for him, that means he goes skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, and 2.7 seconds on a bull named Blue Manchu. Uh, Responding to Y2K, uh, the prediction that the world would end in the year 2000, the artist formerly known as Prince... Uh, said if that was true, he would party like it's 1999. (laughs) And of course, the alternative rock band REM says that if it's the end of the world, well, they would feel just fine. Now, what does the Apostle Peter say if it's the end of the world? Uh, To be clear, he doesn't say that the world is ending tomorrow. No, he says that the end could happen at any time. In light of that, he says you should stay focused so that you can pray. He says you should love one another. He says you should seek to show hospitality. And he says you should serve one another. It's an interesting answer. Now, Peter sets up his passage with one truth and four instructions. And every instruction he gives is in light of that sort of headline truth, that the end of all things is at hand. So if we could summarize this paragraph of 1 Peter, we could put it like this. That living in light of the end will cut through sin and selfishness so that we make our lives count by loving God and loving others. So let's start with that headline truth that hangs over this entire passage. The end of all things is at hand. This is another way of saying that the end of history is at hand. And again, Peter doesn't say that this is happening tomorrow. Rather, he's saying it will happen soon. It could happen at any time. Peter isn't alone in saying this either. It's the testimony of the New Testament. James 5 verse 8 says that the coming of the Lord is at hand. The very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, Jesus himself says, Behold, I am coming soon. So how can Peter and James and Jesus and others say this? Does Peter have a crystal ball? Is Peter just going on a gut feeling or is he just, is this just a wild speculation? How can Peter say this, that the end of all things is at hand? I think Peter can say this because the work that Jesus has already done. Jesus has already done all that's necessary to bring sinners into his kingdom. That is, Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived but didn't. Jesus died the death that you and I deserved in our place on the cross. And that Jesus rose again from the dead three days later, declaring his victory over sin and death. Jesus did that first. If Jesus came first to establish his kingdom without doing that work, then no one would be able to enter his kingdom. 
So Jesus has already done the work to bring sinners in. And recently in his letter, Peter has mentioned the days of Noah. And I think that could help us here. The days of Noah, Noah are a helpful comparison to the time we live in right now. So think of the time we live in right now as the ark being completed. It's done. It's finished. And the door is open. That's the time we live in right now. Jesus' work to bring sinners into the kingdom is finished. He, died, he lived, died, and rose again. And the door is open. What God is doing right now is by the Holy Spirit, he is drawing sinners to come into the ark of Christ. And what Peter is saying is that door won't stay open forever. It will soon close. And like the flood, so now judgment will soon come. The end of all things is at hand. I wonder how you interact with that statement. I wonder if you ever considered where history is going. That's kind of a deep thing to think about, isn't it? And most of us don't think about it. So, but maybe you think about yourself and your family, where, where you are going, where your family is going. So you have a retirement fund. You have a college fund. Maybe you think about where your country is going and you're kind of obsessed with the next four years and what's going to happen. But what about everything? Where is everything going? Is, there, is any of this heading anywhere? Or are we destined just to cycle endlessly until one day the sun burns out and everything's gone? Don't you want it to be true that there is some type of an endpoint? Don't you want it to be true that there's some type of goal, that there's some type of a final resolution, that there's some righting of wrongs, that there's an end to evil and suffering? Don't you want that to be true? Well, if history tells us anything, is that we can't bring about that kind of goal ourselves. You just look at history, look at the 20th century even. Every time human beings try to bring heaven to earth, it ends up looking a lot more like hell than it does heaven. Only God can do this. And it is God's mercy that he hasn't just wiped us out, but that he includes us in this goal because he wiped out his son in our place. So my friend, from the very outset, when we say something like the end of all things is at hand, come to the ark of Jesus and find refuge there. He is the one who took the flood of judgment that you and I deserve. And we say to trust in him and follow him because time is running out. So maybe you're somebody who says that, I think that makes sense to me. And I think I would be on board, no pun intended there. But if you think that sounds fine, but you know, I just, I don't really feel all that rush. I've got other things to do. I'll do that later. If that's sort of your mantra or your vibe, well, the Bible actually speaks to people who think like that. In fact, Peter himself speaks to people who think like that in his next letter, 2 Peter. He tells you not to confuse God's patience with God's permission. God has delayed closing that door to be patient with you. He hasn't delayed it to give you permission to delay coming to him. My friends, come to the ark of Christ. The end of all things is at hand. Not only does this headline truth give Christians hope and endurance, it's meant to also give us perspective. If it's true that the end of all things is at hand, then you and I should live differently. This is where we see Peter's instructions. 
And for, for Peter, the end being at hand is not a way for us to speculate when it's going to happen. It's not an encouragement for us to just sit around and wait for it. The end being at hand is an encouragement to make your life count right now. Make your life count. And Peter tells you four ways that you could do that. Now, just you look at the rest of this passage. When we think about you need to make your life count, I bet you're like me and you think that this means I need to do extraordinary things. This means I need to be like Daniel in the lion's den who stands up in bravery. This means I need to be like the Apostle Paul and take the gospel across the Mediterranean world. You think I need to make my life count. I need to be extraordinary. Now, people like Daniel and people like Paul, yes, they made their lives count. But just look at what Peter says here. Peter's instructions for making your life count, it actually looks pretty ordinary to me. And I think that's a good reminder for us because you and I, we're obsessed with big and extraordinary. We're obsessed with big personalities, with athletes, with entrepreneurs, with influencers, with politicians, even with celebrity Christians and pastors. But the thing is, the one who will actually change the world delights to use ordinary faithfulness of his people in the world. So the end of all things is at hand. So Peter says, make your life count. The first way you do that, instruction number one, is to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, self-controlled and sober-minded are basically two ways of saying the same thing. In other words, Peter is saying, keep your head. Don't lose it. Stay focused. Stay clear. And don't be distracted. And you can see why he would need to say something like this, right? If the end of all things is at hand, then they can look around them. And when things are going crazy in the world around them, they don't need to panic. They can be self-controlled and sober-minded. It's been a while. Uh, I'm, I'm due for one. I'm, I'm thinking of The Office here. And uh, one episode of The Office, uh, no one listened to the fire drill instructions that Dwight Schrute gave to the rest of the office. And so he uh, hacks a plan or hatches a plan and he, he intentionally starts a fire and then he locks all the doors and he cuts all the phone lines and he wants to see what his, the rest of his coworkers will do. Uh, and so it happens and people discover that there's a fire and the, the office soon descends into pandemonium. They, they figure out they're trapped, and soon their fearless leader, Michael Scott, just yells out, okay, we're trapped, everybody for themselves. <laughs> it's a hilarious scene, but it's kind of striking to us because Christians in our day and age can so often act like that, that the world has gone crazy and we just descend into panic and pandemonium. Peter's instructions here reminds you that, Christian, you don't need to act like that. You don't have to treat the next presidential outcome like it's going to determine the fate of the universe. The end is at hand. Don't give in to panic. The same Jesus that rose from the dead is the one who reigns and is the one who, re- who will return. Be sober-minded and self-controlled. You can see why Peter would need to say something like that. Because the end of all things is at hand. So for them, when the world would tempt them and when the world would pressure them, Peter says, don't fall for it. 
Be self-controlled, be sober-minded. That's what he was just talking to them about in the previous paragraph. He was just telling them, don't give in to the temptation and the pressure to relapse into your former lifestyle. The supposed joy of living your own way will be very short-lived because the end of all things is at hand. So you should keep alert. You should stay focused. This is similar to the teaching from Jesus we read in Matthew 24. Now, Peter says, if you aren't self-controlled and sober-minded, if you're constantly panicked, if you're always distracted with entertainment and busyness, if you are entangled with sin, if any of that describes you, then your prayers will be affected. All right, either you just won't bother to pray or your prayers will be dry and ineffective. So if prayer is something like a phone call, I know that analogy breaks down. If prayer is something like a phone call, then unaddressed sin in our lives will make the connection spotty. But admit it, right here, it's a little surprising that Peter would tell us about prayer, right? The end of all things is at hand. You need to make your life count. You need to stay focused. You need to stay undistracted so that you can pray. Really? You would think it would be the opposite. You would think it would be, I, 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 there's so much to do. There's so little time. I just don't have time to pray. Do you ever say something like that? Is that like your default mode of how you live? There's just so much to do. There's so little time. I don't have time to pray. I can't remember who said this. Maybe it was Martin Luther. If you find yourself in a situation when you're, when you're saying to yourself, I just don't have time to pray. If you're in that situation, actually, what you should be thinking is that I don't have time not to pray. Do you really think that you could handle all of the demands and the tasks of your life on your own? That's what prayer at its core is. Prayer is dependence on God. Christian, you believe that Jesus alone can save you and not yourself. Do you also believe that Jesus alone can sustain you? Do you take Jesus' word seriously when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing? So do you want to tell how self-controlled and sober-minded you are? How is your prayer life? If your prayer life is absent or dry, there's likely a distraction, there's likely a habit, there's likely a sin, there's likely a temptation that is crowding in that you're not addressing and that's keeping you from praying. Why don't you talk to God about that and ask for help? Even as a church, friends, this verse reminds me that I don't want us to be a group of people who are flurried with activity, but empty with prayer. I think about your time together this morning. One of the activities you should give yourself to before you leave here every week, why don't you make it a goal to pray with someone else here? Oh, wouldn't that make the most of the time? Instruction two, the end of all things is at hand. So make the most of the time. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly from a pure heart, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, just to make a couple observations on the whole, I find it interesting that Peter's first instruction is his only instruction that's inward. Every other of his instructions of how to make the best use of the time is outward. It's how we treat other people, especially other Christians. That shows us, I think, that Peter assumes that the people he's writing to will be around other Christians consistently. So 
So for Peter, making your life count means investing time, energy, and resources in the local church. The New Testament authors assume that if you call yourself a Christian, then you will be a meaningful part of a church community. And my friend, if you're not a meaningful part of a church community, well, welcome here. We would love to have you. Please come to our membership class. Starts at the beginning of July. We would love to have you. 945, my study. Now, just Peter's, the, the, only his first instruction is inward and the rest are outward, how we deal with other people. It just makes me think, I hear all this talk today about the importance of self-care. Hear talk like that. I, I think the Bible adds a helpful clarification. Take even this passage, being sober-minded and self-control, tending to your relationship with the Lord. That isn't meant to be an end in itself. You take care of yourself so that you can take care of others, right? It's, it's the instructions on the airplane that you always ignore. That if the oxygen mask comes down, you put it on yourself first, not so that you could just sit back and relax and say, well, I guess I'm good now. You put it on yourself first so that you can better help other people. Well, let's move on to the second instruction. How do we make our life count? Above all else, keep loving one another earnestly. Well, you just break that down. Peter flags the importance of loving one another. He tells us above all in verse eight. I wonder if your Bible instead have a, had a fill in the blank kind of Mad Libs style after above all, what would you write? <laughs> Probably many worthy candidates. But Peter says above all else, keep loving one another. It's not to minimize the other things that we do, but think about the context. If the end of all things is at hand, that begs a question for you. How are you going to make it with the end of all things being at hand? How are you going to endure? Well, God intends to help you endure in the Christian life through the love of other Christians. My friend, are you opening yourself up to that? Are you trying to make it alone? God intends even to use your love for other Christians to help them endure. Are you giving yourself to that? It reminds me of Hebrews 10, 25, which says not to neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another. Why? Like Peter says, because the end is drawing near. We need one another. Peter tells us the type of love which we are to love one another with. He says to keep, one, keep loving one another earnestly. Another word for that is constantly. Now, this could be Peter's way of saying that he recognizes something they're already doing and he wants them to keep on doing it. This makes me think of you, dear brothers and sisters at West Creek. At two and a half years ago, two churches came together. And just by my observation, it didn't take long for two churches to become one. I have seen you love one another. Keep doing it by God's grace. Keep loving one another earnestly. It also could be Peter's way of saying that the need to love one another is not going anywhere. It will always be necessary. Keep going. Peter tells us another reason why we should love one another, why it's so important. He says, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, we could be confused here, so let me be clear. Peter's talking about our horizontal relationship with one another, not our vertical relationship with God. 
Peter's already spoken about how God forgives and covers our sin. He does so through his son, who, according to chapter two, verse 24, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That is the cross. And you see, it's only when you experience the vertical forgiveness from God that you'll be able to express horizontal love and forgiveness for others. That's what Ephesians 4.32 says. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Maybe put some flesh and bones on it. I'm thinking about uh, the passage from Luke chapter 7. This is a time when a Pharisee named Simon invited Jesus to eat at his house. I love that Jesus would eat with stuffy religious people and he would eat with uh, the people that no one else wanted. So Jesus is eating at a Pharisee's house. Probably maybe eating in some type of open area, maybe some type of courtyard. Now back then he wasn't sitting down at a table in a chair. He'd be leaning on a cushion. His feet would be out. And all of a sudden he starts to feel someone washing his feet. It's a woman who's standing behind him and she's washing his feet with this expensive oil and wiping it away with her own tears. And so Simon the Pharisee recognizes this woman. She is, her reputation precedes her. She's got a bad reputation. This is Jesus. What, he tells Jesus, Jesus, what is a man like you doing with a woman like her? And Jesus responds to Simon, Simon, let's, let's play some comparison here. When I came into your house, you withheld the welcome from, that you would give to any common guests that you didn't give to me. Whereas this woman, she has washed my feet. She has kissed and washed my feet. What explains the difference between you and her, Simon? Well, Jesus tells him. He's, he says, this woman knows how much she needs to be forgiven. How much she has been forgiven. Simon, you think you're just fine. Friends, what's, what's the secret to love in a church? What's the secret to love and warmth and forgiveness and unity in a church? Is it just that we're nice people? Is it just a personality thing? No, it's what Jesus says, that those who have been forgiven much, love much. Forgiveness is the secret to more forgiveness. My friends, how many of the grudges and petty disagreements would melt away if you remembered how much you've been forgiven? How much of the stuffiness and the arrogance in church melt away if you remembered how much you've been forgiven? How much of the lifelessness and the dryness in your relationships with others at church would melt away if you remembered how much you've been forgiven? But my friend, here's the reality. I'll just level with you that even as a forgiven follower of Jesus, as you walk alongside others in the local church, you will still sin and you will still be sinned against. That's a reality. So the only hope that we have to move forward, the only hope we have to be restored, not to crumble apart as a church, is to keep on loving one another. I think few of the Christians that Peter wrote to would have the chance that if they were offended at church, that they could just go down to the other church down the road. It's not to say that Christians never parted ways, but that was the exception, not the rule. If we're to keep going, we need forgiveness-fueled, sin-covering love that addresses a multitude of sins. Now, it's easy to get confused here, too, so let me be clear. 
covering sin is not the same thing as excusing sin. Peter's not saying that you should never address someone or what someone someone else has done. Peter's not saying that this gives you a license to keep doing whatever you want. Neither does covering sin mean that it takes away your responsibility to confess sin, to confess something you've done wrong and ask for forgiveness and repent. But let me just play this out here at West Creek. Um, I know a lot of people here have observed kind of the warmth and welcoming nature of this group of people here at West Creek, that there's a special kind of unity here. Um, I've observed it too. I thank God for it. But if it's all right, I might throw a little wrinkle into that. It could be that you experience that warmth and love and unity because you actually haven't gone deep with any relationships here. Now, that's not necessarily the case, but that could be the case. I'm just saying that I don't think it's that hard to maintain surface-level friendly relationships with people you have conversations with for five minutes a week. I, I just don't think that's that hard. So this might surprise you, but if you're never offended by something someone does to you at church... And if you have never had to extend forgiveness to someone at church, like personally, I would say that you probably have too shallow of relationships at church. You might be on the sidelines. You might just be hovering on the surface of relationships. On the other side of that, if you've never had to ask someone personally to forgive you at church, either you're ignoring something that you've done, or again, you might have too shallow of relationships at church. Again, we're not giving license to offend one another. We're not excusing sin. We're not wishing for this to happen. We're just saying that this side of heaven, it's just going to happen. So if you never experience it, I just, I have no other explanation than you're more or less withdrawn from church. So today, your next step might be that you need to go deeper. That you might, you might have to stay like 10 more minutes after service and talk to someone. Ask more intentional questions. You might see and talk to people who are here outside of the four walls of this building. Today, your next step might be to extend forgiveness to someone. To take the first step toward the person that you have a tension with or a disagreement with. Friends, it's, it's one thing to be friendly uh, in a five-minute conversation. It's quite another thing to love one another through conflict and tension over the long haul of many years. This is the kind of deep love that God intends for us in his church. This is the kind of love that the gospel creates. How do you make your life count? The end of all things is at hand. The third way you do it, Peter's third instruction, is to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The end of all things is at hand. So Peter says, don't be a miser with the stuff you have. Don't be a miser with the home you've been given. So if you're looking for an example for how you might love one another, here it is. Show hospitality. Now, that word for hospitality, like we said earlier, literally means stranger love. Now, in their context, believe it or not, there was no Holiday Inn Express. Neither was there an Airbnb. So when Christians traveled to bring the gospel to new cities, they relied on the hospitality of Christians they didn't know. You can read about it in the book Third John. 
But notice Peter also says that they are to show this type of stranger love to one another. So in many places around the world, right now, if you become a Christian, you are quite literally kicked out of your house. Many places around the world, the stakes for getting baptized are much higher. The rivers of baptism is like the river Rubicon. It is the demarcation point. There is no turning back. Right? It is to publicly identify yourself with Jesus Christ, that you believe in him and what he has done for you to save you. That effectively puts a target on your back in many places around the world because it's seen as turning your back on your family. So there are places around the world, and it probably worked the same back then in 1 Peter, that new Christians literally needed a new place to live. They would also need to show hospitality to one another because they would also often need a home to gather in to worship. They would need places to gather to share meals and fellowship. But notice that Peter writes with the understanding of a pastor. He knows that uh, he says to show hospitality without grumbling because I think he knows what you're thinking. When you hear something like you need to show hospitality, he hears you thinking in your mind, Peter, I don't have time for this. Peter, my house is small, and it seems to be perpetually messy, and I'm not a good cook. I can maybe handle hamburger helper, and that's it. I don't have the right set of china or doilies. I get it. Hospitality is inconvenient. Having people around can get annoying, and not to mention, it doesn't have to cost you a lot, but hospitality will cost you some. But Peter says the end is at hand. So are you really going to use what you've been given? only for yourself. The end is at hand. That means that soon enough, the home that your savior died to bring you to will soon be here. And if he has opened up his home at infinite cost to himself, oh my friend, you can open up your home at a cost to your, yourself. How can you do this? How can you show hospitality to strangers and to one another at church? There are five ideas I uh, heard from another pastor. Five ideas for showing hospitality to strangers and to other people at church. Number one, okay, we'll go through these quickly. Invite people into your space, your apartment, your home, your condo, whatever. So many of us view our space as like a castle or a fortress. Like if you could build a moat around it with piranha, you would do it with a drawbridge and all of that. I think of the example of Matthew, the tax collector. That after Matthew met Jesus, what did he do? Well, he threw, a, he threw a party for his former co-workers and he introduced them to Jesus. And remember that Jesus himself was famous, even infamous for doing what? For eating with sinners. And I think Jesus was on to something. As one author puts it, that one way sinners enter the kingdom is by first entering the kitchen. Right? Your neighbors probably won't come to church with you. <laughs> but they might go to your home. Second way you can show hospitality, idea two, is to invite people into your spiritual home. It is still okay to invite people to church and tell them, let's go out to lunch afterwards. It's on me. And let me ask you about what you thought. Third idea, eat with Christians informally. No agenda, just get together over a meal. Guys, haven't community groups, meeting in homes, eating dinner together, hasn't that been so special? Seriously. We want this for you if you haven't been part of it. Fourth idea, host Christians in your home and see what God does. 
I can't thank people like Donna Betty Lucas, Bill and Donna Barbie, Luann Brown, Jared and Emily Guillaume, and others for opening their home regularly. You know, one of the things we're praying about here at West Creek is that God would raise up another person or couple to host a third community group. Maybe that's how you consider living out 1 Peter 4.9. Talk to me about that. Pray about it. Fifth idea. Make our church gatherings hospitable. It's been said that the goal of hospitality is to turn strangers into friends and friends into family in Christ. So every week, there will be someone here who you don't know that well, or maybe who's just brand new. Commit to getting to know them with that goal in mind. Stranger into friend, friend into family. The end is at hand. Make the most of your life. Make the time count. The last way you do that is to use your gift to serve one another. Now, if verse 7 is like the headline truth, the beginning of verse 10 is like a subheading. He says, each Christian has received a gift that he or she can use. So this is one reason why we regularly say that the ministry at West Creek doesn't just happen up here on the platform. It happens out there in the pew. And Ephesians 4 says that the work of pastors isn't just to do ministry themselves, it's to equip and train others to do ministry. So friends, you, Christian, have been given a gift. And Peter tells you the purpose of it. You are to use it to serve one another. And this is opposed to not using it at all, right? So maybe you say, I'm just too busy to get involved. Maybe you say, I just don't think I have anything to offer. I'm going to leave it to the other more talented people. My friend, don't believe that. You have a gift and we need it here. Would you use it? You're not meant to be a cul-de-sac. You're meant to be a conduit. Right? You're not meant to receive. What you receive shouldn't end with you. It should be through you and given to others. Now, maybe you already have a sense with the areas that the Lord has given you a knack for. Maybe you kind of know what your gift is already. You know what you're naturally good at. Maybe you're good with people. Maybe you're good with kids. Maybe you're good with working with your hands. Maybe you listen to this, you say, each person's been given a gift, and you think, Steve, I, I, I truly don't know what gift I've been given. What do I do? I truly don't know what I have to offer. Well, I think the purpose of gifts might help you. If the purpose of your gift is to serve one another, maybe the best way to find out what your gift is is just to start serving and see what you're good at. Don't wait till, until you know what your gift is to serve. Start serving, and then you'll know what your gift is. And that's not an excuse either, only to do things that you're good at. Sometimes we need to do things that are hard. But all I'm saying is don't wait for the opportunity. Go where there's need. Um, So if you're looking for ideas, uh, let me just see here. Any deacons or deaconesses in the room, would you just raise your hand? Okay. Linda, Pyle, and Jonathan, would you also raise your hands? Okay. Talk to the people who are raising your hands if you want an idea of where there's need and how you can serve. There you go. Sorry, you guys. I didn't give you a heads up for that. Let's just keep going. Peter tells us a motive. Why do we use our gifts to serve one another? He says we're to do this as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, I love that word varied. It reminds us that when God saves us, he makes all of us like Jesus, but that doesn't mean he's making carbon copies. Stewards, that word reminds me of Jesus's parable of the talents. It reminds you that your gift has been entrusted to you and the time is short and that you will give account to God of how you use that gift. Peter offers examples, what kinds of gifts, and he breaks it down into two different categories. He says there are speaking gifts. He says there are serving gifts. 
To those who have the gift that deals with speaking in the church, he says to speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Now, oracles is just a fancy word for words. Speak as those who speak the words of God. So if you have a a speaking ministry in the church, your speech isn't to be based on your own wisdom. It's to be based on God's wisdom and God's word. That's what Peter is saying. I wonder, have you ever heard of inebriated preaching? Oh, I I hopefully got your attention there. Probably a lot of ideas come to mind. Inebriated preaching. Well, this comes from David Helm's book, Expositional Preaching. He cites a Scottish poet uh, and that poet's criticism about how some politicians manipulate statistics for their own agenda. And he says that same criticism can be leveled against many preachers in that they use the Bible the same way a drunk uses a lamppost more for support than for illumination. In other words, for those who have a speaking ministry in the church, quoting the Bible isn't the same thing as using the Bible properly. You can lean on the Bible to support what you want it to say. Or you can say only what God intends for it to say. That is relying on God's wisdom, not yours. Peter's other broad category of gifts is those who serve. They are to serve with the strength that God supplies. And I think, again, Peter writes with the thoughtfulness of a pastor because he knows that serving can be difficult, even discouraging. Maybe sometimes serving can be dull. It's easy just to put your head down and go on autopilot. He tells you to serve with the strength that God supplies. Now, what does that look like? Well, maybe it looks like three different Ps. Maybe it looks like serving with prayer. That you plead with the Lord that he would give fruit from your efforts of service. Because you know the only way your service will be effective is if he gives the increase. Maybe serving with the strength that God supplies looks like patience. That you you serve on God's timeline and not your own. Maybe serving with the strength that God supplies looks like perspective. That you can work hard, but you can still sleep at night and have peace because you don't have to do everything. You don't have to do what only God can do. I think that would avoid discouragement and would allow you to rest. This, I think, could mean what it, to serve with the strength that God supplies. So I wonder if there are nursery workers in the room or gospel project teachers or welcome team volunteers or any other servants or musicians or whatever. How would your service transform if it was bathed with prayer, if it was done with patience, and if it was done with perspective? This is the strength that God supplies. So there you have it, instructions for how to make your life count. For as ordinary as these look, it's a full life. And Peter closes with a result. He says, when all of this happens in the church, when there is sober-mindedness and self-control and love and hospitality and service, then God is glorified because he is the one who makes it possible. He is the one who gets the praise. It's God's grace that has brought us into this family. It's his grace that keeps us going. It's his wisdom that builds us up. It's his strength that enables us to serve. And all of that has come through his son, Jesus Christ. I I love the last line of this paragraph that's filled with what to do because it's on the closing note. It's a reminder of what Jesus has done. 
right? We never start with what we do. We start with what Christ has done. All of our service, all of the ways we make our life count is not to earn our place with God. It's because we already have a place with God. So we remember that we are acceptable, not because what we do, but because what Christ has done. And therefore, because the end is near, we seek to make our lives count. Let's pray. Dear Lord, would you, would you be glorified in this place among this group of people? Give us strength. Give us your wisdom so that we may remain focused and close to you. So that we may love others with how you have loved us. So that we might be generous in the same way you have been generous with us. So that we might serve as you have served us. Would Christ be deeply reflected in this group of people? And those who are a part of Christ who stand outside of the door, would you draw them in to safe harbor? God, we thank you for your word. Would you help us give us grace and strength to be doers of your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.